Well, I had a really rough day on Thursday. I spent three hours in the morning driving to Oakland and back to pick up my son after his overnight with his grandma, enjoying the bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic that many of you brave every day. My four-block commute from my apartment has spoiled me. AJ was cranky when I got to him. Mimi, his grandmother, completely ruined his life. She ended their walk earlier than he wanted. Well, a cup full of crackers made the trip home bearable. But he did make sure to sniffle very loudly every few minutes to remind me that he was still not pleased. So I came to church and I got settled into the office and my day started, but was very soon interrupted by a FaceTime call from my husband, Andrew. Over AJ's screaming, I learned that the purpose of this call was to let me know that AJ was still cranky. I cooed and I made silly faces and sang songs to no avail. His father, it would seem, had the audacity to try to feed him a meal. That is not an insult that can be fixed with a song. I offered my deepest sympathies to my dear husband, Andrew. I let him know what an amazing father he is and how much I appreciate everything he does. And we ended the call exasperated, but okay. Then I got an alert on my phone. Don't forget, it said, you're going to die. <laughs> the people of Bhutan have a saying, to be a happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. So of course, an enterprising app developer has turned this advice into a simple app called We Croak. <laughs> five times a day, at random intervals, you get an alert. Don't forget, you're going to die. I've only had this app a few days for now, but I can't really tell you if my happiness has increased at all, but I can say that it has taken away a little bit of the sting of disappointment in my daily life. A cranky toddler is pretty unpleasant, but when held up against my own mortality, that red little face streaked with tears is the only thing I want to see and hear forever and ever. My friends, the life of a committed Christian is jam-packed. We are very busy people. We're forgiving our enemies, seeking and serving Christ and all people, reading, marking, and inwardly digesting scripture, all, of course, while praying without ceasing. And looming large on our spiritual task list is the big one, to stare into the grave, making our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. This may be life's greatest spiritual task, and it's the most difficult. We do not come to grips with death by putting on the mask of faith, holding someone's hand and saying, she's in a better place now. Nor do we declare ourselves free from the sting of death by having a dance floor and a DJ at a funeral, which is another story for another time, my friends. 
John O'Donohue, who is a master of Celtic spirituality, has beautiful language for this task. We are called to transfigure our fear of death. And ultimately, this is the only power we have over death. The power to grapple and transfigure our fear of it. Like it or not, death is our constant companion from the moment we're born. The only true certainty that applies to all of us. On the other end of this work of transfiguration, of grappling with our fear of death, is this beautiful promise. As O'Donohue writes, since you have overcome your fear, your death will be a meeting with a lifelong friend from the deepest side of your own nature. Transfiguration is defined as a change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual death. And O'Donohue believes, and I believe, that even death can be made more beautiful and more spiritual. And God, our loving creator, thank goodness, has not left us without resources to transfigure our fear. For one, there is the We Croak app. But I suspect you came to church for a little more than an app recommendation. The tools we have to transfigure our fear are many and deep and broad and diverse. And today I'm going to introduce you to three that might help you on your spiritual journey, on your work of transfiguring the fear of death. So these three ideas are scripture, the celebration of Dia de los Muertos, and also the moments that come up in our own life experiences. Let's start with scripture. Today's readings are beautiful. Readings about death. In the book of Isaiah, and so often in scripture, Words are not adequate to write about or to talk about death, and the writers have no choice but to resort to poetry. And in Isaiah, we hear this beautiful description of a grand feast, of a communal gathering where all are fed sumptuous and rich food. Paul takes kind of a different tack. He appeals to our intellect. He's trying to argue us into a more beautiful interpretation of death. And even Paul, for all of his arguments and logic and rhetoric, can't help but resort to poetry. The sounding of trumpets. Oh death, where is thy sting? And the Gospel of John offers us an amazingly unique perspective on death. John, like all the Gospels, talks about eternal life. But for John, eternal life is not something off in the future. He's not talking about the sweet by and by. John sees eternal life as right here and right now. The hour is coming, it says, and is now here, where the dead will hear the voice of God. John does not see eternal life and the end days as something that will happen eventually. It is here and now and among us. 
And it's one of the reasons why readings from John are often recommended for Episcopal funerals. Because it has this presence, this imminence, this way of being in our life as we live and breathe today. Let's think about Dia de los Muertos. This is a celebration that, as you can see from our beautiful decorations, we are engaging in today. It's a blend of Mesoamerican indigenous traditions and celebrations that predate the church for a long time. It's come to be associated, though, with the Christian holidays of all saints and all souls because the Catholic Church, when it came to Central America, saw a natural analog in their theology of death and in this celebration. The festive demeanor of the people during these celebrations echoed the joy in the resurrection that the church wanted to see in its people. And I think it's important that we celebrate Dia de los Muertos because it gives us a lens and a language for making death more beautiful, which is part of the work of transfiguration. In the West, we tend to approach death with black gauze and veils and maybe a lily, but really with somber expressions, more or less. Dia de los Muertos offers us marigolds, offers us sweet treats and color and music and family reunions between the living and the dead. Altars with candles everywhere, visits to grave sites so that you can remember your family members. It's so important that we learn from and honor this cultural tradition and that we give thanks for it and for the ability to learn from a culture that might be different from our own. Finally, there's our life experiences. And this is the tricky one. God drops little signs and symbols into our lives all the time, and it takes some discipline to see them. But I wanted to share an experience that I had this week that really helped me to transfigure my own fear of death. On Tuesday evening, many of you joined me in a vigil at Temple B'nai Israel in Vallejo. And they had a vigil to remember the 11 people who were killed and more who were injured at the congregation in Pittsburgh. It was an incredibly moving evening. And that vigil itself to me was a powerful symbol of transfiguration. This community that had every right to shut its doors and to lock them and to build fences and put in guards all around their congregation, instead chose to fling open their doors and they flung open their arms. I must have been greeted by at least six people, members of that congregation, on my way into the church before I could sit down, into the synagogue, I mean. It was an amazing experience that this place opened their doors and welcomed the community to pray and to console them and not to lock down. The thing that really touched me was the last part of this vigil 
was everyone in the group gathered singing America the Beautiful. For this congregation of people so hurt and so wounded, to ask God in song to shed grace on this nation transfigured my own spirit. In the face of that moment, my fear and my grief and my anger had no choice but to transfigure into something more beautiful and more spiritual. Who was I to wallow in my anger while this gathering sang about the beauty of life in America? You know, growing up, I had a Jewish part of my family. My stepfather was Jewish, and I always liked the Jewish family funerals much better than the Christian family funerals because I didn't have to put on a happy face like I had to for the Baptists. At a Jewish funeral, we sat shiva with family. We ate really good food to nurture our souls, and we prayed and truly felt our grief at someone dying. And no one at those funerals told me to smile because my relative was with Jesus. In the Episcopal Church, I find a sacred middle ground. We acknowledge that there is this deep darkness of grief that comes with death. And we go there, but we don't linger there because doing the hard work of transfiguring our fear of death and believing in eternal life is what we're called to do. We cannot abide by empty platitudes that all shall be well. This tradition asks us for something far more difficult. It's the transfiguration of fear. It is making death more beautiful and more spiritual. It is the task of working on our courage to stand at the grave and to make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Amen.